welcome to a very special edition of the Business with Purpose podcast. I am your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly. And as always, this show is about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are quite literally changing the world. Now, each week, I usually bring on a entrepreneur, a nonprofit director, a community leader, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is always to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. Now, this week is a very special episode of the podcast, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Just two weeks ago, I was in Austin, Texas at the Fair Trade Federation Conference. It was the 25th anniversary of the Fair Trade Federation, and I was so honored to be invited to go to this conference and also be a keynote plenary speaker. Seriously, I had to pinch myself multiple times that I got to be involved in such an incredible, incredible celebration of all the work that so many fair trade folks have done over the years. And so this podcast episode is going to be a little different than my normal podcast episodes because it is a recap of the conference. So I have some special audio clips from the four plenary speakers, Lene Ferretti, the acting CEO of 10,000 Villages, from Liz Bohannon, one of my dear friends and just people that I love. I adore her so much. She is the founder of Seiko Designs. And then along with a little clip from my talk that I gave and also from Jessica Honiger's talk, she is the founder and co-CEO of Noonday Collection. And then in addition to that, I've got some exclusive interviews that I gathered walking around the Fair Trade Expo. And I interviewed just quick, short little interviews with some incredible Fair Trade brands and some of the people there representing them. And so I just wanted to kind of give you a little glimpse into this incredible conference um, and just make it something that would make you feel almost like you were there. So as always, you can check out the show notes for details on the brands mentioned and be sure to leave some love on social media for these incredible fair trade brands in addition to this episode and all of those things. So without further ado, I want to just bring you right into one of the first opening plenary talks and that's with Lene Ferretti. Now Lene has been around the block a time or two. She has been involved in the fair trade world for years and her wealth of knowledge is absolutely incredible. And in her presentation, she was talking about some of the research that 10,000 Villages has done in the last few years on the changing face of the consumer market, the retail market, and understanding what customers understand about fair trade versus what they value. But this little clip that I wanted to share with you just really goes to the heart of 10,000 Villages and the fair trade message. So I hope you enjoy it. What did this mean for us? All of this information that we had to filter through. To start, we had to go back to our roots. We had to go back to our core, which is our founder, Edna Ruth Byler. She was just one woman trying to help another woman. And there was nothing that we, that we, would, we would do to compromise or to change our vision and mission that has been who we are as an organization since 1946. But what that did mean is that the message around who we are and what we did had to change. And so we devised a campaign to simplify the story of 10,000 Villages. Um, and we created what we call the Maker to Market movement. 
that we just discuss, to, we just explain to the customer what it is we do through the value chain transactions with the artisan communities that we work with around the world. We also started using 10,000 villages in our language. So join, become part of the story, and connect to 10,000 villages around the world. Yes, we are known as a pioneer and have a pioneering spirit, but we can't hang our hat on that. Um, there's a new age and a new consumer that is interested in our handcrafted products and the stories we tell and the people that we work with, and we needed to refresh that. So instead of redesigning the brand, what we say is we're refreshing the 10,000 Villages brand. We love this juxtaposition of image between the maker and the market. It's something we're going to continue to do. Now, if you have ever heard Liz Bohannon speak, you know she is an incredible speaker. This woman has so much joy and energy and passion, and she lights up a room every time she is in it. Now, Liz and I have actually been internet friends for quite some time, and this was our first time meeting in person, and it was as though we had known each other all of our lives. I cannot say enough good things about Liz Bohannon, but what I love most about her is her passion for for Seiko Designs, the impact that they're having on the world, and also incredible design. So her talk was titled Design Thinking and talking about all how we use this idea of design thinking to build better businesses, build a better world. Her entire talk was incredible. Honestly, I wish I could share the entire audio with you, but that would make this episode very long. So here is just a couple of my favorite highlights from Liz's talk, Design Thinking. One of my major mentors and kind of icons, Seth Godin, he has this quote where he talks about the myth of preparation, right? This idea that we can get our products and our brands to be really, really perfect kind of behind the scenes and we, we put resources into it and we perfect it and then we put it out into the universe and that's kind of the end of the, end of the thing. And, and no, never. No one ever says like, I did this thing and I perfected it behind the curtain and then I put it out into the world and it worked. And now 10 years later, I'm just basically doing the same thing, said no one ever. Like, every solution that we have is simply a stepping stone to the next more relevant, more robust solution, and your ideas are not going to get better by perfecting them behind the scenes. You have to get them out into the market. I love that Seth Godin says, like, stop trying to be an expert. Stop trying to make it perfect. Just do the beginner stuff and stop screwing around. Um, so I, uh, we just started, like, throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? We're like, okay, we're kind of trying to build this manufacturing thing in East Africa. Meanwhile, we need to sling some sand to generate some revenue. This photo was actually taken on the side of the highway. Uh, of Highway 5, I was on my way to an event in LA. This was like a couple years into our business and we were in like standstill traffic. It was so, so packed and I get very cranky in traffic and I was just mad at the world and then all of a sudden I was like, mm. <laughs> I have like a box full of sandals in the back of my car. <laughs> Feels like a captive audience. So I literally just got out of my car, Ben put the car in park, and I'm just like on the shoulder, literally knocking on people's windows. I'm like, you have literally nothing better to do than hear my sales pitch. And I sold a couple pairs of sandals on the side of the road. So we were literally selling sandals on the side of the road. I had made, this is my website, by the way, do you guys know that you can find on the internet websites? This is our website from 2009. This is our beautiful, beautiful website that I designed. Um, nice logo with a font that I'm pretty sure we didn't own and was like totally illegal for me to use. Um, so we were like trying to figure out the e-com thing. It was so bad. I, this was a website and then when you went to the shop page, 
Um, and then you clicked add to cart. That was like the point that my technology knowledge like maxed out. I couldn't figure out how to like code in processing and payment and everything. And this was before like, you know, Spotify or um, Shopify. And so I literally had a box. You would click add to cart. It was a trick though, because it didn't actually add it to the cart. A box with my cell phone number just popped up. <laughs> so like for three years, whenever I would get an unknown call on my cell phone, literally no matter where I was, I would be in the movies and I would like run out and be hiding in the bathroom and someone would be like, um, hello. I'm like, Seiko Designs headquarters, hello. Um, hi, this, uh, hi, I, I want a pair of green sandals. And I'm like, oh yes, you've come to the right place. Hold on just a second. Taking our like credit card information on my hand, that is not legal, do not do that. I do not recommend that. Now, in addition to all of the amazing speakers, there were breakout sessions throughout the days of the Fair Trade Federation Conference. Sessions from Fair Trade Campfire Stories, where we heard some incredible Fair Trade brands share their experiences working with their artisan partners across the globe, experiences in business, so many things, to more technical things like SEO and growing your social media and all those kinds of things. But one of the panels that I personally loved, and it's because of the world that I work in, but was the working with influencer marketing and the influencer panel. And while I will admit that personally, I don't love to use the word influencer. It is what it is. That's what people call it. So influencer marketing. And there were some incredible influencers that were there serving on this panel. It was uh, moderated by Kirsten Dickerson, who is the founder of Raven and Lily, one of my favorite fair trade brands. And it featured some incredible Austin influencers who have done a lot of work with fair trade brands in addition to larger brand partnerships. And so I just wanted to share a little clip from that panel to give you a perspective on what some of the panel discussions looked like. I think one of the things from a brand perspective that Raven and Lily has learned is when this started, most influencers we're fine with product exchange like five, six years ago because it's quite new. Sure. It's not the story anymore. Most influencers do expect to receive something for their time, but you want to make sure it's an influencer that will add value to your brand, that um, they are aligning their voice to something that resonates with, with something that you would like to communicate about the work that you do. And when you're thinking of your marketing budget as a brand, really the most effective way, as we even heard today from um, some of our speakers, is through social media right now. It is the most effective way to push your brand forward, and it is much cheaper than traditional marketing and advertising that was happening just 10 years ago. So uh, working out a budget and figuring out how you want to work with influencers, it's just that you want to be selective. And going with smaller influencers sometimes can be more powerful than large ones because Smaller influencers, um, which is someone who's under 100K is what I would say um, is a smaller influencer, um, is someone who is going to be more relational, like these ladies are talking about, and they're going to really be thoughtful and about developing a partnership. And um, when they get to a certain level, sometimes they're only looking for really big money-driven partnerships, and that's just the reality. Not everybody is, but, um, but you, you can really approach um, and find that if they have a loyal following, like if you see in an engagement on an influencer where there's lots of comments and lots of conversation happening, that means when they post about something, people are really paying attention mm -hmm. and they're gonna listen. So, but if there's someone that's every day posting about something different and it feels like an advertisement and doesn't feel authentic, you can tell in the engagement that probably they didn't get much of a response. That brand probably didn't get much of anything. That was just my experience for Raven and Lily. But those influencers, like the ladies sitting here, who are more relational, and have that following that's engaging in conversation when they promote something, 
that resonates to be authentic to them, the response is usually much better for the brand and you get a return on your money. So there are influencers that do not have a large following that we have had large amount of sales from because they had such a loyal following. And when they said they love something or were wearing it or told the story, we saw immediate response to that. Admittedly, one of the things I was most excited about doing at the Fair Trade Federation Conference was meeting some incredible people that I have known online or in some capacity for years. And one of those people was Shannon Riesenfeld, who is the founder of Mango and Maine. Now, Shannon and I have known each other for quite some time, but apparently we actually knew each other long before that and we discover it while I was interviewing her. So I hope you enjoyed this short interview with Shannon. I'm so excited that the first person that I'm actually going to be interviewing here live in person at the Fair Trade Federation Conference is the inimitable (laughs) Shannon Riesenfeld from Mango and Maine. And so, Shannon, I just want you to quickly introduce yourself to the Business with Purpose podcast listeners. Okay. Hi, Molly. Hi, everyone. Um, Yeah, my name is Shannon, and I'm the owner and founder of Mango and Maine. Um, I work with artisans in Rwanda, Haiti, and Peru um, who make accessories and jewelry, skirts, bags, all sorts of things, um, and I sell them here in the U.S., so I work with them on product development and trying to distribute their products to different stores around the U.S. Um, We recently became members of the Fair Trade Federation just about a month ago, so I'm really excited to be at my first conference and get to meet everybody here. It's been so much fun. So what was the big motivation for joining the Fair Trade Federation? Yeah, I've always admired the Fair Trade Federation because they set such high standards um, for fair trade. They have a really thorough vetting process, um, and they really are setting the bar high for fair trade companies to adhere to nine principles. Um, So I really wanted to go through the application process um, to become a part of the community here and to be able to network with other business owners and just learn more about how we can improve our business and get products out to consumers. Now, I know everybody's, their journey to starting their business or getting into fair trade and ethical fashion or whatever it is, is looks different. In, you know, your kind of quick summary, what, how did you get to starting Mango and Maine and how did you get to, to doing, becoming so passionate about this? Yeah, so I worked for Noonday Collection for over five years as an ambassador. Um, learned so much about fair trade through them, traveled all over the world to meet different artisan groups, and I really got to see firsthand the impact that our purchases had um, on those communities and the change that was happening there. Um, I also worked on a fair trade fashion blog with my friend Brandy, Fair Trade Fashionistas. Wait a second. Okay, I am just now, everything is coming together because I did not realize like you're the Shannon of like the fair trade fashionistas. Okay, I'm having an actual light bulb moment here for, because Brandy Mendenhall is, she is local to me in Durham, North Carolina. And Brandy and I met, she's basically how I discovered Noonday years ago. Yes. And so I, I knew Brandy through, I went to a Noonday trunk show like right after she launched in early 2012. I know. And then, and so then, uh, yeah. And so I knew she did this blog and I knew she did it with someone named Shannon. And I'm going to be honest, I had, I'm like just now putting two and two together. So, okay, this is crazy. You guys are actually experiencing firsthand <laughs> me having this really, because I've now, I've like been talking with Shannon online for a while and I know Mango in Maine and she's in my Facebook group. And so now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's clicking. <laughs> Everything is clicking. Okay. So anyway, so... <laughs> 
before I so rudely interrupted you, uh, Shannon, can continue your story. Okay, so Brandy, yeah, is one of my best friends. We met through Noonday Collection. Um, we started working on this blog together in 2012. Um, and we would dif we would review different fair trade brands. We would, I mean, wear clothing and shoes and just talk about how much we loved these brands that were doing so many cool things. Um, we met a lot of different artisan groups through that. I mean, we had a lot of artisans reaching out to us saying, hey, can you talk about our products? Um, and we just saw an opportunity to build a business. Um, for a while, we had a little shop on fair trade fashionistas where we were selling um, artisan made products from Rwanda. And it just kept growing. And so after a while, I decided to create Mango and Main and launch a whole separate business um, focused on mostly wholesale, getting the products into different stores. And now it's becoming more retail and wholesale and everything. So that's where it started. That is amazing. And now I feel like, I feel really silly that I did not even realize that you knew Brandy. Oh my goodness. Okay. It really is a small world. Now, arguably one of the most fun parts of the conference is the Fair Trade Expo. You have this two-day event that goes on throughout the conference where you can see and shop and feel and touch and talk to some of the most incredible fair trade brands. These are some of the best fair trade brands in the industry. I mean, there, obviously, there are so many that are amazing, but I loved getting the opportunity to go around to all of the different booths and see some of the new products, some of the classic products, being able to see and taste and touch. Yes, taste, because equal exchange, I'm looking at you and your amazing chocolate. Um, but really, it really was one of my favorite parts of the conference. And so I got to kind of go around and do some interviews with some of the brands there. Now, obviously, I wish I could have interviewed all of them, but I wanted to kind of give you just a look into some of these incredible brands and show you kids brands and accessory brands and fashion brands and nonprofits and even equal exchange with their delicious food. So enjoy some of these interviews with some incredible fair trade brands. So I am here with Alice Grau from Global Mamas at the Fair Trade Federation Conference. And I have been a personally a huge fan of Global Mamas. I discovered you a few years ago through a little shop called the Village Country Store. And you guys, I guess, sold some wholesale stuff to them. So I had discovered the brand through them and got my daughter and my son matching outfit. And then I discovered, obviously, the beautiful women's wear. But um, I want you to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the Global Mamas brand and what your mission and the heart of your brand is. Hi, thanks. Um, so I'm Alice Grau. I am the creative director of Global Mamas. I have been with Global Mamas for 10 years um, and started out as a volunteer through our volunteer program and then worked at one of our locations in Ghana. So I did that for a year on top of my volunteer time. Um, and then I've been working with Global Mamas stateside since, um, first as a sales and marketing person, which is not my background at all, uh, but anything to stay with the organization that I felt passionate about and just loved the mission and the brand and the women that I had grown to love and know um, and then eventually was able to work myself back into the design world which is my background and I yeah so I've been doing the creative director thing for a few years and work with our team of designers on the ground in Ghana to do all of our new product development each year and um, yeah so we've been Global Mamas has been around for 16 years 
Um, and we've been doing this thing legitimately, for real, just really um, in deep relationship with each other. Um, the six original co-founders are still a part of the mesh of who we are, um, but we've grown to almost 400 producers that we work with. And we're really focused on prosperity, whatever that means to the individual. Um, we know that that changes. In America, we have a pretty convoluted sense of prosperity, but um, the mamas that we work with, for them it's building houses, it's sending their children to school, it's buying food, um, it's sending themselves back to school. We have many mamas who now their children are in university and they themselves are going back to get degrees. Um, so it really varies. Um, and we've been able to see that manifest in uh, ways such as buying land, um, buying cars, expanding their businesses to employ more women, um, buying more machines so that they can do that. Um, and so it really, it really varies. Um, and just to be able to see that manifest um, in their children and in the women that they then hire. Um, we have you know, kids who, you know, their parents have been proud of the program since they were quite young. Um, we have a young woman who just graduated out of school with a degree in um, bioengineering science or so, some, some degree I can't even name, right? Um, <laughs> and just there, I mean, that's what's the byproduct of this work and that's the reason why all of us do it, why the few people in the US who um, help represent this line, that's why we do it, that's why the mamas do it, it's all about you know our families and supporting each other and seeing more women be able to you know have opportunities in life. I am here with Charlie Brandis from Equal Exchange, and if you are not familiar with Equal Exchange, you might recognize them from maybe your local Whole Foods, or I actually personally have purchased uh, Equal Exchange chocolate from Sprouts. I love, love, love this company. They make incredible the most delicious chocolate in the entire world. My husband and I may or may not have been eating chocolate up in our hotel room during the conference, um, but they also have tea and all kinds of goods. But uh, Charlie, tell us a little bit about you and your position with Equal Exchange. And if people are not familiar with Equal Exchange, what is it that you do? Sure. Um, so I work in the sales department at Equal Exchange for the last six years. I've been with Equal about nine years overall. The first three years I worked with what we call uh, community sales, so it was with a lot of churches that sell our coffee and chocolate because they see the mission match there between what we're trying to do for small farmers and what, you know, what their church's values are. Um, I worked in the main office in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts for three years and then I got the opportunity to join the sales team and move back to Ohio, where I'm from. So I live in the Cleveland area. I was go Browns. Go Browns. Go Browns. They're going to be relevant again soon. Yes, go Browns. Woo! Sorry. So, um, <laughs> so it's myself there and a couple other sales reps. We deliver to a pretty large grocery store chain in the area. And uh, we cover a lot of Midwestern states. I call us a Great Lakes team because our territory touches all five of the Great Lakes. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, we work with a lot of food co-ops, uh, a lot of small natural food stores, a lot of alternative retailers, like the ones here at uh, this conference, and more and more with a lot of big retailers. I happen to be sort of the liaison for Kroger, who carries some of our chocolate bars, and, you know, we really feel that as long as you know, it, it's huge. We're in 1,400 stores, and that that about knocked me over when I get that account. And I was worried that this would change who we were somehow. And we just we really feel like as long as we don't change 
what we're doing with our supply chains and how we're treating the farmers that, you know, our mission is to move as much um, chocolate and coffee and tea for them as we can. That's really our overall goal is to connect consumers to the farmers that grow their food. Um, it's more challenging in the current environment when we work with big box stores because there's no, the customer sees our product on the shelf and that's the only interaction they have with our brand versus a small gift shop or a food co-op where there might be a sales clerk that could explain who we are. You know, so we're really trying to make efforts now to reach out to customers directly. Uh, we have a new thing called the Equal Exchange Action Forum. Uh, people, if they're interested, could just Google that, Equal Exchange Action Forum, and learn how they could get involved with food issues and um, how to make their voices heard um, to big corporate America and tell them you know, they're not satisfied with the current food system and we want change. So. Charlie, you bring up something really interesting, and you said that at first, it kind of, I heard it in your voice where you said when you landed that Kroger account, and you were in 1,400 stores, and you, you realized the potential for the growth, and this is a common thing I hear among fair trade brands, is that they're almost afraid to grow. And they're afraid that it might hurt who they are, it might hurt who, it might hurt their artisans, or the groups that they work with, or anything like that, yet, our mission as people who are advocating for these types of values, um, we want that to become the norm. Right. So how do you kind of balance that as you have, because I personally, like I've seen equal exchange in so many stores around me and I love, love, love that. I'm like, oh, I know that brand and like I can talk to people about it. Um, so that's something that excites me. So what? how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. We don't want to be niche, right? Our goal is to change the food system. So we want everybody to have these practices uh, the way we balance it is just to try to be fair to our other retailers that are our longtime partners in this mission. We realize we don't consider uh, the larger retailers necessarily our mission partners. I mean, they are in a way because they're helping to move the product, but they're, they're simply responding to their customer, what they perceive as their customer's demand for some of these products. And, uh, and if they don't sell, we know we could be gone tomorrow. Uh, so I think it's just to, to have a balanced approach, uh, not to put all of our eggs in any one basket, because we know that could be really challenging for a company if you lose those sales. Um, just try to proceed with as much caution as possible. You know, my boss once told me my job is to make mistakes, but just try not to make catastrophic mistakes, right? So uh, yeah, you have to be careful. A lot of these big, I mean, I'm talking about, a lot of uh, selling food, so it's got some particular nuances, but they ask for things like free fills, and you know, here's supplying a free case of six different chocolate bars to 1,400 stores. That's a pretty big investment when a retailer could turn around and say, oh, you know what, we changed our mind, we're actually not gonna order, now we're $200,000 out. So, fortunately, uh, to give a little plug to Kroger, they didn't do that, uh, they, they didn't ask for free fills, but you have to be careful of things like that. Um, and, you know, it can be challenging to scale up. We haven't had a situation we haven't been able to make meet the demand yet, with, at least with coffee, chocolate, and tea. Some of our um, other items, like bananas and almonds and cashews, it's, it's a little harder. We're still in the process of establishing those supply chains, um, like we did with coffee 32 years ago. I'm sure we used to have a lot of out-of-stocks on coffee back then. We're just going to try to apply our model to as many different things as we think can make a difference for small farmers. One of the newest things we're doing is with uh, cheese. 
uh, small, and this is what we call, it's not really a, an official thing, but we call it domestic fair trade, because the uh, American family dairy farm is sort of becoming extinct uh, because of low milk prices. and So we're, we're trying to use our distribution chains um, that we have in our relationships we've developed with retailers to get some of this artisan cheese out into the market and and uh, you know help the small vendors that don't necessarily have big budgets for distribution um, not be you know I guess at the mercy of the larger distributors. So I'm here with Julianne Majeski, and I'm putting her on the spot. So I'm just telling y'all right now. Um, and she is with Lucia's Imports. So Julianne, tell us a little bit about you and this amazing company with this beautiful jewelry. And I know that for those of you listening, can't see it. So you're just going to have to trust me um, when I say that the jewelry is just absolutely beautiful. So many hand beaded pieces. So tell us a little bit about you and the brand. Yeah. So I am the manager here at Lucia's Imports. I've been there for three years now. So this is our wholesale business. Um, everything is handmade by artisans in Guatemala. Um, Teresa and Eduardo, that's her husband. Um, he's actually there right now. Um, but they have been doing this for 15 years so her relationship with the artisans is huge and I love it because I get to order um, from Lily in um, Guatemala and I feel like I have this relationship with her but I'll like go on the internet and like Google translate this for me you know just to send the email in Spanish so um, yeah it's really fun we get to um, design jewelry design the ceramics I had a guy one of our good customers from Global Gifts um, just come up here and he's like I need a manly mug so now my thing is I'm gonna be I'm gonna be thinking about what we could do for that so yeah so w tell us you know wh what's a little bit about the you know I know obviously the jewelry is handmade in Guatemala yeah. what's the inspiration for the design behind each piece because it seems like there's a really good mix between kind of traditional traditional um, Guatemalan designs and then also jewelry that you would see you know in a, a store here in the United States so yeah. what's the inspiration behind the design so really keeping th the tradition alive of the Mayan culture yeah, so I actually haven't had the opportunity to go there, but um, like this bag right here, you can't see that, but that's the original um, wheat yield design, which is what their um, traditional fabric is. So we try to incorporate that and keep the culture alive there. Like this headband's got the worry dolls, and that's a, um, a big thing in Guatemala, the design on the ceramics. Um, that's um, Palapo. I think that's a, that's a place in Guatemala, but yeah, that's that's the tradition of where that came from. So, the beads, um, those are glass beads. They're actually from Czechoslovakia, um, but we work with the cooperative of women who make those beads. It's called the Elder Bead Project. So I am biased because this next brand I fell in love with a few years ago um, when my first daughter Lily was born um, and then my, obviously reinvigorated when my son Amos was born and this is Pebble and Pebble hand makes the most beautiful dolls, stuffed animals, uh, you know, like baby blankets, baby rattles, but they're just, they're so beautiful. My son has a little um, robot rattle from, from Pebble that he still just loves, loves, loves. So I am here with Marita Miller, and Marita, I would just love if you would share a little bit about you and how you got involved with Pebble and a little bit about the heart behind this incredible company. Sure. 
Um, so I had the incredible privilege to live in Bangladesh, where these are made, um, with my family. Two of my kids were born there. Um, and so just from little up, they were seeing this beautiful country. And um, when it was time for us to come home, we, uh, we had gotten to know the woman who started Pebble. And she actually started this out of um, when her own kids were born, just seeing how so many moms had to leave their babies behind and move to the cities and work in garment factories because there really are not other options for women in Bangladesh. Um, and so she wanted to take jobs to the rural areas. Um, she started in 2004 with a handful of women, and today it employs more than 12,000 women throughout the country. And so when we moved back to, to the States in 2010, she asked us to be her U.S. distributors. And so we've been doing this for eight years and feel incredibly blessed to do this. 12,000 women. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. There's, it's probably more like 14,000, but officially they say 12,000 just to be safe. Because um, a lot of women will train you know, their neighbors to help when they're busy. So it's definitely more than 12,000. That is incredible. I had no idea. And that makes me love Pebble even more. Um, talk to us about the inspiration behind the designs and the, the style, because obviously it's a hand knit, um, or is it crochet? It's mostly crochet. There are some knit pieces as well. So talk to me a little bit about the inspiration behind the designs. And is this a traditional Bangladeshi style or where did the, like where did all of that come from? Right. Um, it's not traditionally Bangladeshi. The woman who started it is English and she used to knit dollies as a girl. So she took what she knew. Um, she wanted to have something that would be viable for the Western market, something that would be like timeless pieces that they could make, um, well, at the same time, they don't need electricity to do it. Um, so it's very, it's, it's good for everybody. Um, it's an easy thing for them to do. And um, so she looked at it just with um, does, trying to come up with designs that would be marketable here and um, easy to duplicate by women who are illiterate. and. So they can easily, they can see it and learn how to make it just by, by seeing it. Okay, so I actually had to stop and come to this next booth because I am here at the Grain, it's the, the Grain of Rice Project, and I'm here with Amy Ahiga, and they work in Kenya, and for my listeners, they know my heart is in Kenya. Um, I have spent a lot of time working there, and so I'm passionate about all things Kenya. Um, and then I noticed, I went, wait a second, my daughter has this. And so for those of you, you obviously are listening, so you can't see this, and I know this is like a constant problem as I'm doing my podcast. I always try to be like, hey, look at this. And I'm like, wait a second, you can't see it. Anyway, okay. Um, it is this beautiful, and what would you actually, oh gosh. Oh, and here I am. I'm actually knocking things over. So just so you guys know, I'm actually a klutz in real life. Um, so what would you call this? It's a bird mobile. A bird mobile. Okay, so my daughter has this hanging in her room, and we got it in a Fair Trade Friday box. From Mercy House. From yeah. Mercy House Global. And again, I'm a huge Mercy House fan, but I just like, I'm putting two and two together. I was like, wait a second, I know you guys. So Amy, uh, for those that do not know Grain of Rice Project, tell us a little about your amazing company and what you're doing. 
So we're an organization and we're based in Kenya. We're in Nairobi in one of the slums there called Kibera. Kibera is the biggest slum in East Africa. So you have a quarter of a million to a million people living in a square and a half mile area, very condensed. And so we're giving people opportunity through making the fair trade pieces to support themselves. So on each of our products, it has a tag and a picture and a story of the person that made it because we believe about connecting people across the globe and so that you can really understand that there is a person behind this there's a face, there's somebody that this is changing their life, it's helping them to send their kids to school, feed them, pay their rent. And then besides our artisans, we work with kids, so we sponsor them to go to school. We're working on building a school right now, so you can check that out on our website, grainofriceproject.org. That's incredible. And you have beautiful everything. One of the things that I love so much that uh, you mentioned before we started recording is that everything is made from either sustainable materials, recycled materials. So you're really also doing whatever you can to eliminate waste. Talk a little bit about that. So in the slums, there's no trash pickup and they literally just throw things out in the street. And if you don't find something to do with the trash, it just becomes more of a problem. And yeah, we're just a few people doing something small, but we believe that small thing is going to make a difference. So we're using the materials we have around us, paper, bone, brass, and it, it kind of goes along with the story of transforming something that was waste that was thrown out into something beautiful. And that's the same thing with the people that we're working with. So they come from really hopeless situations and it looks, it looks bleak, it looks dirty, it looks trashy, but then their life is transformed and, and these are beautiful people. They don't have to be bound by the circumstances around them and they're able to do something wonderful uh, despite the dirt. You know, they have talent, they have ability, they have gifts. So in full disclosure, I stopped at this booth, I came around the corner and I saw this beautiful garment rack and hanging on the garment rack was the most adorable jumpsuit I've ever seen. I was like, uh, this is amazing. And then I came around the corner even more and saw this beautiful, beautiful jewelry. I mean, I cannot even begin to describe to you guys how I want every single piece of jewelry on this table. We're talking tassels. We're talking beautiful colors, gold, beautiful metals, scarves. This is Rover and Ken. And I am here with the founder, um, Wen King. Wen, tell me about your beautiful brand. When did you start this company? I need to know all of the things because I'm now a huge fan. Hi, thank you so much for appreciating our line. Um, we're actually a brand new business. We've been around for about a year. Last year, the Fair Trade Conference was our deadline to launch. So we're still, you know, figuring things out. And um, as she was saying, we have a very small line of clothing. All the clothing is hand woven um, and made at a very small women's co-op deep in the jungles of West Bengal. And it's the most amazing thing to see when you walk into a room and it's all women and when men come in to visit they're the ones who become shy because it's a woman's world so it's really amazing i love working with them and all, all of our jewelry is handcrafted in india also and whenever you make a purchase it comes with a little uh, info card that talks about the communities that we give back to um, and the programs that we run which include uh, microfinance for the artisan communities healthcare. Um, child care in addition to fair trade employment. And so 
yeah, thank you for appreciating what we do. We're still trying to figure everything out. And Well, I, I have to just interrupt you real quick because you said that you've only been around for a year. And meanwhile, like, the, I'm not kidding when I say, like, these are designs I feel like I would see in a Madewell, in a J Crew. Like, these are beautiful designs. There's clearly a lot of thought that has gone into this. So talk to me about... You have really seemed to, off the bat, like out of the gate, strike this balance between working with these incredible artisan partners in India and Bengal, and like, and then also putting out beautiful designs that consumers, like like me, just, I came around the corner and I just was like, <gasps> that's amazing. So talk to me about the, the intention behind that, because it clearly is very thoughtful. Um, I think for me, the key is to keep it simple. Some of our best sellers are actually the simplest designs. Um, I think minimalism is something that's on the rise. People don't want something necessarily too flashy or too bold. Just keeping it simple um, and keeping a clean aesthetic um, works really well for us. And I mean, I do spend a lot of time, you know, designing, asking opinions from people. And I mean, it's just been trial and error. So I'm glad that you appreciate it because I don't necessarily get that perspective working with it every day. And so, yeah, thank you for the feedback. Okay, I am here at the Maya Mom Weavers booth here at the Fair Trade Federation Conference. So if you have been listening to this podcast or if you have followed me on social media, you know I love this brand. They make the most beautiful hand-woven textiles that are hand-woven in Guatemala. Um, and my daughter, Lily, loves her apron, her kid's apron from My Mom Weavers. And so we have a matching mommy and me one. And she always, well, she'll bring it to me and she'll say, mommy, can I cook with you? Mommy, can I bake with you? I'm not a baker. And I'm like, honey, what, what? But she always, she wants to wear it. Um, anyway, I am here with Karen of My Mom Weavers. Karen, tell us a little bit about you and this amazing company and how you got started with this brand. So Maya Mom Weavers was actually born out of some women's organizing I was doing in Guatemala quite a few years ago. And the women needed to find a way to get out of poverty because their community has been really devastated by migration. And so we wanted to think of a way they could earn money and not have to leave their community behind. And so backstrap weaving is part of their heritage. But what we did that was different was have the women learn how to do footloom weaving, which actually in, in Guatemala and in their community of Cajola is a male thing, but the women learned how to do it. And so, and then another group of women learned how to sew with sewing machines. And so we embarked on this very long process. And I personally am really excited now because in the last few years, the We've had some women enter the co-op that have education, and so I finally see how this group is going to be sustainable, how they're going to go into the future. And so about a year and a half ago, we created a marketing and sales council, and now I travel to Guatemala every month for two weeks to help them. And uh, I now see they're going to be able to really take the ball and run with it and run their own business. So for me, it's been a very exciting project. That's incredible that you go there every single month for two weeks. That is dedication. Um, talk to me a little bit about the the evolution of Maya Mom. So obviously you, you started out because you saw that there was a need and you, you wanted to fill that need. 
what were some of the, what did some of the early days look like and what does, what's your vision for the company now? So the vision for them now is the easier part. <laughs> it's so that they have a sustainable business. Um, we we have a small team here in the United States, and we do the a lot of product design for the U.S. market, and we do social media marketing and run our website. But my vision is that as they take more and more control of their own business, there they're developing the market there. They're developing their own products, their own points of sale, and then I think one day instead of me organizing a team here, they're going to be hiring a team to do the work here. So that's my vision for the future. It's been a long haul because the, the, there's a lot of discouragement because they've been living in poverty for a long time. So first they just get some people to believe in it, and another... An, a thing that we I had before this a, a business career and one of the so when they learned how to do the sewing they learned how to do the weaving what I said is okay now we're gonna start a business but you have to come here to our work space our workshop to work and that was really a shock to them and some people dropped out of the group because they were looking to do something out of their home which is more the model there but I see now I mean it was the way I looked at things because of my corporate career but I see now that was a very good decision because they have been able through working together to begin to collaborate with each other to begin to be creative together to interchange ideas and that is what has made it possible for them to be able to go into the future as a, as a sustainable business. So I am here at the Passion Lily booth at the conference and I am with Katie Schmidt. Katie, introduce yourself to our audience and this beautiful, beautiful brand that you are with. Yeah, uh, so my name's Katie. I am the designer and business owner of Passion Lily. We are a fair trade clothing line. We use all artisanal fabrics. All our designs are done by me in New Orleans and we manufacture in India. So one of the things that draws me so much to the Passion Lily brand is just is the beautiful designs. I mean, I literally, before we started recording, I was over awkwardly in a corner trying on a pair of like, what would you call them? Like just wide leg trousers, I guess, flare leg trousers, I don't know. But I stopped because I was like, these are the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And then of course, like your, the tops, the dresses, everything is just so beautifully made. Um, talk to us about your design background and did, is that something that you went to school for and where did that all come from? Yeah, so I have sewed all my life. Um, when I was a little girl, I asked my mom for sewing lessons. Um, so it all kind of started there. I studied costume design in, in college. I did honors in costume design. And then I spent a lot of time working in theaters, doing everything from um, a stitcher, a craftsperson, assistant, and a designer. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got my whole start in design. So what is the, you know, you, I know you said you work with artisanal fabrics. Where are you manufacturing these goods? What, um, what is really the heart and mission behind Passion Lily? So as I mentioned, we're a fair trade company. So first and foremost, we want to make sure that we people that we work with are getting an uplifting environment. So that's not only through a fair wage, but through a positive environment um, if they need on the job training. Um, of course, assuring that the, the working place is safe, that they get breaks when they need. Um, and then the other component is that we're using artisanal fabrics. So it is not easy. It's definitely a huge challenge working with hand block printed fabrics. 
we do a special um, process called reactive dyes. Um, where we have a base color, a dark base color, and then a lighter print. Um, this process, um, it takes the fabrics printed, um, and then it's steamed, and this takes several days, just the steaming process alone, and a lots of care because it's very easy for mistakes to happen. Um, but it's part of our mission. We don't want something that is fast fashion. We don't want something that is uh, sorry, screen printed. That block printing is a part of who we are, and so it's really important for us to keep that alive. I am with Joy O'Brien of Fair Anita, and we were just talking before I started recording, and I discovered Fair Anita, I feel like pretty soon after you guys launched, um, but this is just a beautiful jewelry and accessory line, um, and one of the things that really strikes me about Fair Anita is not just the fact that these products are so beautiful and made by incredible people, but also the fact that you are doing whatever you can to make ethical fashion more affordable. Um, so Joy, tell us a little bit about yourself and the brand. Yeah, thanks Molly. So everything here, we strive to make it cute, ethical, and affordable. So started Farinita about four years ago with the intention to, how, how can we create a more inclusive economy for women? And But that also includes ethical consumerism on this side of the, on the equation, right? So um, we work with artisans, we do the design work. Um, and so sometimes that means, how can we design pieces so that it takes artisans less time to make the products and therefore um, we can sell them at a, at a lower a lower price point. So most of our earrings retail at about $14. Um, and we just want people to be able to wear things that they're excited about, that they love, but they can also afford. And these are pieces that, like, I feel like you would see these in the jewelry section at Target, at, you know, Madewell, J. Crew, at, you know, any, like, no, like big box retailer. Um, and comparable, if not more affordable, in price than some of those places. Um, and so I say that as a compliment because it's just... It's, it's jewelry that just really speaks to, it's on trend, it's stylish, it's beautiful, and then it also tells a story. Um, talk a little about, the, you, you mentioned that um, one of the goals is to make jewelry that, that takes them less time. So it's simpler designs, but then there's also, there's a statement behind it. So talk to me about the design process. What is involved in that for you? Yeah, well, I love that you said that you feel like you could see it in Target because actually in my original business plan, that was like, that was the goal. How do we make mainstream jewelry? right like so anybody you're not going to buy it because of pity you're going to buy it because it's something you love that can like totally fit into your everyday wear preach girl yeah <laughs> so yeah we're designing things for for the average consumer for the average woman um who is also obviously wonderful and um conscious and aware um but yeah so we so i've so we work with 19 different women's cooperatives in nine different countries uh some of those cooperatives we developed ourselves uh i've lived with different communities in mexico and chile and peru and we've developed those supply chains that way and so gotten to really work side by side with artisans and as we develop those products and then we also work with women in south africa and ethiopia and india and cambodia and uh, we're lucky to be able to travel and visit them and be part of the process, develop those relationships and try to figure out how can we better connect our customer with artisans and vice versa. So I am here with, and he's going to laugh at us, I'm here with Dr. Campbell, <laughs> Dr. Campbell Plowden. He's, his business card says PhD, and so I wanted to address him as doctor, and he told me not to, but I did it anyway. So Campbell, I'm so excited to meet you. You are with the Center for Amazon Community Ecology. Talk to us a little bit about who you are and what you do. 
Okay, well, um, I started the Center for Amazon Community Ecology in 2006 as a way of trying to help people make a living in the rainforest without cutting it down, very simply. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, and we now work with 15 native and campesino communities in the northern Peruvian Amazon. So we help them develop and market innovative fair trade handicrafts and essential oils. So I've been doing this now for 12 years, and it came in the wake of my doing rainforest conservation work with Greenpeace at the international political level. And I left the, uh, the not so great task of trying to lobby the World Bank at the global level to try to affect change at the very, very local level. Wow, how did you first get connected with this particular region? Like what, what was it in your life that really, you know, was in your heart that said, this is an area that I really care about and I'm passionate about. Where does that stem from? Well, for me, the rainforest conservation issue is the ultimate endangered species issue. We have uh, literally tens of millions of species living in the rainforest and it's being cut down and burned at a, at a frightening rate. So every time we lose a hectare of rainforest, we're losing species. So that's, you know, that makes sense at the global level, but at the local level, you have people who need to make a living. And so the choices that they typically have available are cutting and burning the forest to sell cash crops, or there are people who are making a living by cutting the forest down for cattle ranching, logging, uh, palm oil plantations. And so our focus is to work with people in these little villages and try to give them an alternative. So instead of cutting down the forest for doing very low value kinds of products, we can work with them and say, you know, treat the, the rainforest, the biodiversity of the rainforest as an asset, not an impediment. So can we use the richness of your ecological knowledge, your knowledge of the wildlife, your knowledge of the plants, and make some beautiful crafts like we have here, these uh, wide range of Christmas tree ornaments featuring dozens of species of birds, butterflies, uh, all the incredible mammals that live in the forest, and bring those to people in the US. So it's not about a commodity, it's about making a connection between people and the forest and the people who live there. So every time someone buys a craft from us, it comes with a card that says the name of the artisan, the name of the community, and the plants that went into making that craft. So they can identify all the way back to where that product came from and feel like they're not buying a commodity, they're making an investment in the future of the forest. I hope you enjoyed those interviews and be sure to check out those incredible fair trade brands and support them. I just had a blast talking with all of those incredible people. Now, on Thursday morning, I opened up the day with my talk in front of all of the conference attendees. And to be quite honest, I was so nervous. Now, I talk and I teach and I am in front of crowds kind of regularly, but there was just something I was so nervous about with this talk because it's an audience of people I admire and respect. And the crux of my talk was really about inspiring and encouraging and challenging these fair trade warriors to think differently in this next season of their business. So it was the 25th anniversary of the Fair Trade Federation, and I just kind of gave them a picture of where we've 
we've been for the last 25 years and where I truly feel that we're going over the next 25 years and how I feel that the future of fair trade is that this becomes business as usual. As we see so many big brands like J. Crew and Madewell launch fair trade certified denim lines and Athleta becoming a certified B Corporation and Target partnering up with IJM. As we see these big corporations and, and brands stand up and say, hey, this is something that we are listening, we see, and we know we need to make changes, that means things are changing for these fair trade brands. And so I wanted them to really feel challenged and and encourage that what they've been doing matters and that as they enter this next season of business, what can they do in their businesses to set themselves up for success for the next 25 years? So that if in 25 years, the term fair trade no longer exists because it's just business as usual, what can they do to make sure they are still in business? And how can they really appeal to their customer base in addition to empowering their artisans? So I hope you enjoy this short clip of my talk that I gave at the Fair Trade Federation Conference. There's actually a fashion brand that I used to love and I have been emailing and writing and calling and posting on social media asking them about their manufacturing practices asking them who made my clothes for two and a half years and they have yet to answer me they clearly have no idea who they're dealing with (laughs) now look um, the people in this room are doing incredible work you are actually literally changing lives with the work you're doing And the work you're doing is working to make this industry, the industry of business, fair trade values become normal and business as usual. More and more businesses, both big and small, are joining the ethical and fair fair trade industry quickly because of consumer demand and because of the foundation that you all are laying. The rate of change in the industry of business is tremendous right now. But for some of you, that's actually a problem. Because here's what I believe, is that one day, and I don't think it's too far off, cause marketing is gonna seem shallow. Because consumers are gonna say, well, that's how everyone does it, right? So what you are doing is no longer all that unusual. And here's just a few examples of what I'm talking about, okay? How do I turn this, here we go. Madewell and J. Crew, the fast fashion brands, recently launched fair trade certified denim lines, and they're just starting there. Athleta, who is owned by Gap, is now a certified B Corporation. Nike, Nike, the sweatshops of the 90s Nike, now has an entire department dedicated to sustainability and ethical practices. IJM, International Justice Mission, has partnered up with Target to eliminate labor trafficking in their supply chains. Meghan Markle and Emma Watson, two of the world's most famous celebrities, have become walking billboards for ethical and fair trade fashion, selling out of items in hours. And this, all of this, has happened in like the last six months. Like, that's incredible. So if the industry of business as a whole is changing quickly, if more and more businesses are wising up and realizing that they have to change their practices and that they want to do the work to ensure that the people from the fields to the factories to the sales floor are safe and paid fairly, that means things are changing for you. 
Because that now means that companies that are fair trade are in the same conversation with brands like this. Now, for many of you, you actually recognize this is a huge opportunity to advance the ideals that you care about. But for some of you, and you might not even realize it right now, it means you could be screwed. And I say that with all love and respect for everything that you're doing, but I hope that this is something that inspires you to think about the next 25 years. So like I said in the beginning, I hope to see the term fair trade cease to exist in the next 25 years. And while some of this might even have made you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I'm kind of glad. Because I believe that fair trade values need to be the norm. Like this is what we're advocating for, is no more human trafficking, no more labor trafficking. We want our environment to be taken care of. We want these things to be the norm. So I hope it's pretty obvious that I love what you are doing. I am an advocate for you. So many of you were like, what brand are you with? What business are you with? And I'm like, I'm just an advocate for you. That's my job, is being an advocate for you as a blogger and a podcaster. I want to tell your stories to consumers so they can start realizing the power that they have. But I want to see you stay in business in the next 25 years. So how do we ensure that? How do we ensure our businesses aren't obsolete, even if the term fair trade becomes? Okay. And the last speaker of the conference was Jessica Honegger, the founder and CEO of Noonday Collection. Now, Jessica is no stranger to this podcast. She was a guest on it back in the day. Um, I have been a longtime supporter and lover of Noonday Collection. And so I was so excited to hear from her and hear how she encouraged these fair trade warriors to keep going, that to make sure that their fuel tank is not running out to make sure that they're continuing to push the boulder up the hill when things get tough and to keep on going. She inspired so many of us and I hope you enjoy this clip from Jessica's talk. Its goal is to isolate you. Its tone is shame. Its voice is, gosh, I loved everything Molly just said. It's too late. We're never going to be relevant. Its voice is, I'm all alone, and there's nobody here to actually walk with me. It's the voice that says, my dreams are too big, too audacious, I might as well play it small. It's the voice that causes you to look at your competition and decide you want to run in their lane instead of your own. And when we give this voice credit, it is going to drain our vision, our passion, and our fuel. And I have found that my voice speaks the loudest when I'm in the middle of taking a risk, when I'm in the middle of starting to do something really uncomfortable. And that voice was so loud on one particular night that I almost listened to it and I would not be standing with you guys here today. And it was the night that I stood around in my living room looking at piles of paper beads, dishes of my grandma's stacked up on the dining table, clothes on the living room couch that I was about to sell. And unbeknownst to me, I was about to launch Noonday Collection. My husband and I, we have three kids, my teenager, um, another little boy who's 10, and my Jack, who's nine. We adopted Jack from Rwanda. And at that time, when we were adopting him, we um, 
ran out of money. We were working in the real estate market and suddenly this little nest egg that we thought was going to help fund this international adoption was suddenly paying for the groceries. I knew I needed to do something in order to get Jack home. We had already started the adoption paperwork. We already knew that there was this little boy waiting for us in Rwanda and I wasn't gonna let a financial obstacle stop us. Well, Previous to that, when we were beginning the adoption process, um, my husband and I had flown to Uganda to explore adoption and to meet with some dear, dear friends of ours. These are friends of mine that I had knew, known in my early 20s when I used to work for an organization called Food for the Hungry International back in the day when I lived overseas. And they had decided that the real way for change was through entrepreneurship. So they had moved to Uganda to start entrepreneurial opportunities for Ugandans. They had started a little plumbing business. They'd helped someone with a mosquito spray business. And then one of the businesses that they tried to start was an artisan business. They had met a young couple named Jolia and Daniel who were extremely talented but were extremely poor. And they said, well, you're so talented. Can you make some beautiful things? And all those things were just sitting in Texas with no marketplace. And on this trip, they had said to me, Jessica, do you think you could create a marketplace for Jolly and Daniel? And I was like, are you kidding? I've got two kids, one on the way, I have real estate. And I laughed the idea off. Well, fast forward a few months later, when I am literally putting the groceries on the credit card, and I remember that conversation. Because suddenly, courage had cornered me. And I thought, Maybe I could sell those beautiful artisan-made goods, and that could seed some money for this adoption. So I drove to their storage unit. I dusted off all of these beautiful things, and I set up my home like the prettiest store I could think of. I was also selling pretty much everything but the kitchen sink. As I'm standing there in my living room that night looking around, I heard that voice like, nobody is gonna come. No one's gonna show up for you. And if they do, look how desperate you look. I mean, we were still trying to make it as realtors. Who's gonna hire a realtor if you're having to sell grandma's dishes to pay the groceries? And I wanted to cancel right then and there. Everything in me was saying, dumb idea. And I'm so glad I didn't. That was the night that I discovered what courage is. I had always equated courage to Martin Luther King and to Rosa Parks and to these heroes that I loved and admired. I thought these were people that had something I didn't have. You know, the fearless people among us, the ones who never get afraid. But what I realized that night and what I know every single one of us in this room has experienced is that courage is simply being afraid and going anyway. Thank you all so much for listening to this special edition of the Business with Purpose podcast. I hope you enjoyed this Fair Trade Federation Conference recap episode. Again, I would love for you to share on social media something that you liked, something that you enjoyed about the episode. You can leave a comment on Instagram at stillbeingmolly or at businesswithpurposepodcast. You can use the hashtag businesswithpurposepodcast or find me on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you want to connect. I would just love love to hear from you. And would you share this show with a friend if you enjoyed it? 
it means the world to me when you do that. And that is the number one way that we can help get more ears on this podcast. I want to give a special thank you and all of the high fives and all of the gratitude to my incredible husband, John Stillman. Y'all know I talk about John all the time because he is the best. He's absolutely the best. And I am so thankful for him. He actually came with me to the conference. He helped me with some audio stuff. He was just such a huge support and it meant the world for him to be there with me. He also helped to edit this conference recap podcast episode and it was no small task. So truly he is amazing and he's so talented and I'm so, so grateful to have him um, as a support system and have him by my side. I also want to give a shout out to Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media for the music and to Mark Haywood as always for the support and helping me to put together the show notes. Y'all are the best. Now, thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose. Purpose.